My name's Ryan. They're letting me preach again. So here I am. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Um, there should be some in the seats nearby. As a preface this morning, I just, I got to say first, thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us in that. Um, I love Christmas. So yeah, clap for them. That's fine. Yeah, thank you. I, I love Christmas so much. Um, I got married this summer, so me and my wife are celebrating our first Christmas together. We put up the tree. We watched him up at Christmas Carol. I, I'm just like, I'm feeling it right now. I think you need to know that. I'm really feeling it. Um, and that hasn't always been the case for me. Uh, for most of my life, I was a pretty huge Grinch. Like, I really just didn't like Christmas. I didn't get Christmas for most of my life. Uh, which makes preaching a sermon on Advent kind of a strange experience. <laughs> I'm pretty new to, like, liking Christmas. Um, I just think, you know, it's... it's for a while, I thought it was overhyped. I thought it was too busy. I thought we focused on all the wrong things, which maybe we, we do a little bit, but I was more of like an Easter person, you know. Um, this all changed a couple of years ago. Um, I was playing music in the Christmas Eve service at my church. Um, and as I'm sitting out there at the, at the piano, looking out at this sanctuary, it's like packed out wall to wall with people. Um, there were so many people in this sanctuary that they're like setting up chairs in the lobby outside, and it was like this for three services. Whose idea was it to have three Christmas Eve services? Craig, we're having four this year, right? Yeah, okay. Um, whose idea was that? And the worst part, the worst part of this Christmas Eve, reminding you, Big Grinch back then, the worst part was there was no child care provided. I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> um, the nursery and Sunday school classes and everything were closed. And so it seemed like every child in the tri-state area was in that sanctuary that night. And if you close your eyes, like, I wasn't sure if I was in church or, like, Chuck E. Cheese. You know, it was just, it was a wild scene. So I'm sitting up there at the piano, and I, I'm, I'm, I can't hear myself playing Silent Night over this army of infants and children just like crying and shouting and running around and, and jangling keys and, and whatever. And I'm just so annoyed. And I'm like, I hate Christmas. And while well, I'm playing Silent Night for everybody. <laughs> and then the great irony of this situation hit me. Here I was grumbling to myself about crying infants while leading a celebration of the birth of an infant. For the first time, I felt like I finally got Christmas as I realized that Jesus, that God himself, came as a crying infant. I think this was the picture I had in my head before that night of baby Jesus. I think that's Latin for my baby is cuter than yours. I'm not sure. Just... <laughs> I mean, that's what, we, that's what we get in our heads, right? We, we think, you know, holy infant so tender and mild and just sitting in, 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 in sheep poop, just like happy and looking at the shining stars. And then baby Jesus grows up a little bit, and then this is the picture in our head. We have, you know, toddler Jesus, like, blessing people. Isn't that... Like, who, who painted that? <laughs> if, you, if you, like, look at 
artwork of the infant Jesus through the years. It's like all that. He's just serene and... But that's not... That's not the truth, right? So as I sat in this Christmas Eve service, I got a new picture in my head. I saw a woman in the pains of childbirth. I saw a baby born screaming and crying and covered in various fluids. And it's true. And a young woman laying this baby in a manger, which was not like quaint wooden Ikea baby-holding furniture. This was a feed trough for animals that they put Jesus in because there was nowhere else to put him. No one had got the crib off the registry for them that year. I realized that the Son of God coming as an infant human was not like a formality. You know, he cried, he breastfed, he had his, his diapers changed. I'd felt inconvenienced by crying babies in the Christmas Eve service, but God felt no inconvenience when he became a crying baby, when he entered fully into human life. That's what we celebrate during Advent. Jesus' presence with us in the mess, his presence with us in the complexity and pain of each of our lives. We also celebrate the way Jesus' presence changes our lives. Transforms the pain into something new. This morning we will consider the way Jesus' presence turns our sorrows into joy. We find a great example of that at the very beginning of the Christmas story. If you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5 with me. It reads, In the time of Herod, king of, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth starts with their high social pedigree as a pure-blooded part of the priestly class of the Jewish people. They were big stuff. It also says explicitly that they are righteous and blameless before the Lord. So it's really surprising to hear that they were unable to bear children. In Jewish thought at this time and throughout most of Jewish history, barrenness was seen as a result of being cursed by God for some kind of sin or, or unrighteous act. So there was great social shame attached to not being able to have children. But as a quick side note, it's worth noting here that that understanding is challenged and subverted. Luke assures us that though they were barren, they were righteous in the sight of God, which is not a phrase used lightly in Scripture. In other words, barrenness was not and is not a sign of God's displeasure. Still, as I said, in this culture, there was a lot of stigma placed on barrenness. But more than that, there would have been immense personal sorrow for Elizabeth and Zechariah because of it. We read in Luke 1 that they were both advanced in years. So not only had they been barren, but they were well beyond the age where they could possibly bear children. They had no shot. <laughs> it was doubly impossible. This was their life. This would have been a huge deal back then. Like, we don't tend to think this way anymore. We tend to think of our lives as solitary, right? Confined to the years we are alive. But in this culture, people didn't live very long. And so there was a real sense in which you lived on through your children. 
in a very real way. So to not have a children was like to not have a future. Hope. That's our context for understanding the sorrow which must have ripped Elizabeth and Zechariah. I'm sure there are people in this room who have experienced a similar sorrow, who have been unable to have children or have had family members or loved ones in that situation. I've known a lot of people who have been unable to have children or who have lost several children to miscarriages. And I've seen from a distance the deep, paralyzing sorrow which accompanies this situation. I've seen my own mother lose several children to miscarriage. The first time it happened, I remember my dad sitting me and my sister down and telling us, Mommy wasn't going to be having a baby after all. I remember this clearly because it's one of like three times in my life I can remember my dad crying. I remember that after that, they stopped telling us when she would get pregnant. And the only way I would know that she'd lost another child is because friends would come by the house with flowers. She'd be in tears, and I wouldn't know why. Others of us have experienced different sorrows. Maybe you were, you were able to have children or were able to adopt, but your relationship with your children has become strained or distant. Maybe you've been unable to find work, suffered the stress and the shame of not being able to provide for your family. Maybe you've walked with a family member through cancer or disease, or maybe you yourself have fought cancer, disease, depression, mental illness. Maybe you've lost a loved one to one of these things, to a drug overdose, to a car accident. Whatever the case, we're all likely familiar with the weight and the depth of sorrow. If you aren't, you haven't lived long enough, but you'll get there. But it wouldn't be much of an Advent sermon if I left us there, right? And we wouldn't have much to celebrate this Christmas season if God had just left us there, sitting in our sorrows. There's more story to tell for each of us. There's more of Elizabeth and Zechariah's story to tell, too. At the beginning of chapter 1, we see a tale of sorrow with echoes through the Old Testament. It reminds us of Abraham and Sarah, who though God had promised many, many descendants to them, they were old and they were barren. They had no children. But in that story, God intervenes and turns an impossible situation around. They are eventually given a son named Isaac, which means laughter. Because in the words of Sarah, God has made laughter for me. God transformed their sorrow into joy. Likewise, he transforms the sorrow of Rachel in Genesis 30 and Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Throughout the Bible, God shows special consideration to childless women. It's pretty cool. So God does the same thing for Elizabeth and Zechariah. Sends an angel to announce to them not only that they would have a baby boy, but that this boy would be a great prophet filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb kind of trippy, but that's the Bible. Um, Verse 14 says this baby would be a joy and a delight. 
many would rejoice because of his birth. Upon hearing this news, Elizabeth responds by saying in verse 25, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the midst of Elizabeth's sorrow, God entered in and brought a joy she never could have imagined in the form of a son. And in the same way that God had taken away her disgrace, her social stigma, God was also at work in taking away the disgrace of the whole Jewish people. Because of their disobedience to God, their kingdom had been split, ravaged by foreign invaders, and the inhabitants had been exiled. And even when they returned from that exile, they lived under the oppressive thumb of the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. They had not had a good (laughs) couple hundred years. And throughout these many years, there were no prophets to declare God's will. God was basically silent. But all of a sudden, people in this town begin to witness barren old couples conceiving. And they remember. They're reminded of how things used to be. Then John is born and Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies maybe the first prophecy they've heard in a long time. And in verse 68 says, The Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. God is no longer being silent in the midst of his people's sorrow. Israel's barrenness is being reversed and the birth of John is the first sign of that. If the birth of John is just a teaser, what's really to come with the birth of Jesus? Of this second baby, the angel Gabriel in verse 32 tells Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The birth of Jesus is like its major news for the people of God. They had waited centuries for the return of their king. And it was finally happening. The first few chapters of Luke are filled with people just spontaneously like popping off with prophecies about this king returning to Israel, about a God who once again was with his people, quite literally, in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. beyond that aspect of it, I think we can learn a lot from considering the way in which God visited his people. As a crying, smelly baby in a manger in some backwater town. God entered into human life in the messiest way possible. And this is a trend that just like continues throughout Jesus' life. He is homeless. He's perpetually like avoiding arrest and getting stuff thrown at him. He's, he's ultimately betrayed by his closest friends and turned over to be killed at the hands of the people that he had come to save. By all accounts, Jesus' earthly life was not what we might call successful. It was kind of a mess. But look what came out of it. A church which grew out of control, even under persecution, even in messy circumstances, especially in those circumstances. 
From the very start, the kingdom of God has been about God working in humble circumstances, and that's what the births of these babies signify. New life, where life had been impossible before. A miracle in the midst of the mess and the sorrow and the pain of human life. In the same way, in the face of the mess and pain and sorrow of the crucified Jesus, hanging naked, mutilated, dead, we suddenly get new life. Where life had been impossible, we get resurrection. In John 16, Jesus comforts his disciples about his impending death, saying, Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. In this time, childbirth was pretty often fatal. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Jesus acknowledges the great sorrow his followers would have at his death. Not to mention the great sorrow Jesus himself would feel at his own death, at being separated from God. But he also reassures them that joy would come even out of that bleak situation. In Jesus, we have the transformation of those kind of situations. Even the transformation of death into new life. There are a number of bleak situations in this room today. And there are a lot of bleak situations in our world. In this room today, there might be barrenness. There might be memories of lost loved ones. There might be depression. There might be addiction. Sorrows of every kind. They're here this morning. And a lot of times this holiday season just like amplifies those things. For a lot of us, Christmas is not a joyful time. It makes us more aware of our loneliness, of our emptiness. In the midst of all of that, the message of Advent is that the presence of Jesus will turn our sorrows into joy. When we consider during Advent the mystery of this baby who is heralded as a king, it's weird. It's so strange, and we as Christians believe another mystery. We believe that this Jesus, this baby, is alive today and really is king. Right now, even if it doesn't appear that way, we believe that in his resurrection there is new life out of death joy out of sorrow, a kingdom of God coming out of messy humanity. Jesus tells his followers at the end of John 16, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In a little while they would no longer see Jesus face to face, but they could have joy in knowing that Jesus had defeated sin and death, that regardless of how bleak things were in the present, the final victory belonged to God. So when I say that our sorrows will be transformed into joy, I don't mean that all the bleak situations in our lives will suddenly be unbleak. 
Jesus tells us just the opposite. We will have trouble in this world. We can have joy in knowing that Jesus has overcome it. That Jesus has entered into these bleak situations. Jesus has entered into the mess, to the pain, to rejection and betrayal and, 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 and torture. Jesus knows firsthand the worst things that human beings can suffer. He has overcome them. He has overcome the things which bring us trouble in this world. Speaking of trouble, I had a lot of trouble writing this sermon today. It's a good transition, right? I didn't know what to say. <laughs> like, we had the premise, but I just like, how do you properly address the sorrows in your lives? I'm, first of all, I haven't experienced much sorrow of my own, and so it's easy for me to look out at all of you and feel like some punk kid with no wisdom to offer. It's hard to do this. And as I thought about it, I thought, I don't think there is any wisdom that I could offer that would remedy the reality of your sorrow. In the face of the mess and the pain and the tragedy and the heartbreak that's in this room, there isn't wisdom that I could offer that would help. And as I reflected on that and felt generally hopeless while writing this sermon, I was reminded that we don't get up here on Sunday morning to offer wisdom. That's not what sermons are. Especially at Advent, but hopefully all year, we get up to witness to tell people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And in the face of human sorrow, Jesus didn't give us worldly wisdom or a moral system. Jesus didn't give us an easy answer. What he gave us is the promise of his presence. The promise of his Holy Spirit, which can and will change our lives from the inside out. His Holy Spirit, which can and will transform our sorrows into joy and transform this world into his kingdom. I don't know how that will happen. I don't know when that will happen. Some of our sorrows won't be healed in this lifetime. But I do know that Jesus has promised his spirit. The only thing that can truly meet us where we are in our mess. And I know that Jesus has come and has met us there. That's what Christmas is. That's the only thing that can give us joy in the midst of sorrow. A joy that like doesn't make sense. A joy that's literally miraculous. Like a baby being born to a virgin or an old woman. To close out this part of the service this morning, we're going to take a few moments for personal prayer. I want us all to have this kind of joy, but it's not something I can preach into you. It's not something anybody can preach into you. We need the presence of Jesus. And so as we take a few minutes to sit and pray this morning, I encourage you to seek him. I encourage you to seek him over this whole season. The confidence that his Holy Spirit will meet you where you are. He has 
the power to transform your life. And he will. Bow your heads and I'll pray with us and we're just going to take a few minutes for prayer. Jesus, thank you for the mystery and the wonder of your incarnation, of your coming as a child, as one of us. Thank you that you didn't just skate through this life like the babies in those pictures, that you, you got in. You got your hands dirty. You really were engaged in the kind of stuff that we suffer every day. that you, Jesus, could transform those sufferings, that you can make us new and make us like you. This morning, Jesus, we're going to take just a few moments and lay our sufferings before you. We just pray earnestly and with faith that you would transform them. You would turn them into joy. I don't even know what that means. Just pray that you would do it. That your will would be done in our lives. We lay them before you now. Transform us and heal us, Lord Jesus. In your name.
we think about the, the joy that we can have through what Christ has done for us, we celebrate through communion. We remember the sacrifice he made, how he gave his life for us. In Psalm 51, it says, have, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Sorrow because of our sin. And yet, the writer continues when he says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's what we have through what Christ has done for us. We have joy in the midst of our sorrow. We have joy through the sorrow. And so as we celebrate and as we remember, we invite you to remember and to celebrate through communion, to take of the bread which represents his body and the juice which represents his blood and and to celebrate, to have the joy that he has to offer to us even in the midst of our sin. I'm going to pray and then ask the ushers to pass the trays. And and as believers today, let's participate as we celebrate the joy we have in you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the joy that we have. Thank you that through your sorrow, Father, that we can have life and life in you. Thank you for this opportunity to remember, this opportunity to celebrate this opportunity to reflect and to allow you to fill our hearts and our lives and our minds. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.